0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from Beijing. I'm your host, Kaiser Guo. A tragic spate of suicides at electronics manufacturing giant Foxconn in Shenzhen. A rare strike by workers at a Honda factory in Foshan. Today on Seneca, we're going to talk about the state of labor in China, looking at the suicides and the strike, and asking whether these things are indicative of something deeper. We're joined today by Bureau of National Affairs correspondent and prolific freelance journalist Kathleen McLaughlin. Kathleen, welcome to Seneca.
2: Hi, Kaiser. Nice to be here.
1: Also joining us this week is Jonathan Watts, a Beijing-based correspondent for The Guardian and author of the forthcoming book, When a Billion Chinese Jump, which I assure you has nothing to do with the Foxconn Suicides. That's right. Hi. Can you share with us really quickly,
3: uh, what's the upshot of the book? Uh, The book is basically about what happens when 250 years of industrial development runs into environmental, social, and other kinds of walls.
1: Right. Actually, you're now technically the environmental correspondent for Asia for the Guardian. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And we actually we look forward to having Jonathan on with Alex Wong from the National Resources Defense Council uh, to talk about environmental issues in China in a forthcoming podcast. Finally, with us, of course, we have the inimitable Jeremy Goldcorn, the man behind the marvelous blog Danway.org. How's it going, Jeremy?
0: Hi, Kaiser. Thanks. That was very sweet.
1: I'm a sweetie pie. So regular listeners to this podcast know that usually we tackle a couple of unrelated topics. Today, however, we're going to change things up again because these two stories, the Honda strike in Foshan and the suicides at Foxconn in Shenzhen, are, well, as some people would argue, thematically related. And the English language media has settled around this idea, this narrative, that what this all means is the end of cheap Chinese labor. Honda has now offered, what, a 24% pay hike. Uh, Hanhai, which is the parent company of Foxconn, says it's going to boost wages now by 30%. Uh, They were saying 20% earlier They've come up now to 30%. And there's a rumor in the t- Chinese tech press, at least, that Apple is planning on donating to Foxconn workers 1% or 2% of profits from products manufactured in China, starting with the iPad. So uh, is that what we're facing? Are we seeing the end now of manufacturing of cheap
3: labor in China? John? Um, I think we might well start to see those kinds of pressures increase in the years ahead. I mean, there's uh, you can think of at least two reasons why. One is demographic, uh, the the sort of bulge in the population that made the uh, number of working age people uh, very, very large relative to the uh, demand for for labor um, is starting to thin off a bit. And in the future, we'll probably be seeing um, uh, slightly less workers chasing uh, the same number of jobs. So there'll be that sort of supply and demand of labor, I think, will be sort of pushing uh, labor dynamism, labor activism in the future, and perhaps driving up wages too. Jeremy, is that how you see it too?
0: To be honest, I'm not really sure. There are parts of the countryside that I've been to where there seem to be um, small towns at least full of people who appear underemployed and the towns don't seem very rich. On the other hand, <clears throat> you go into villages and you see people driving around in expensive SUVs. So um, based on personal experience, I, I, w- I would find it very difficult to say, okay, it's the end of cheap labor. I would tend to think that it doesn't, uh, it's not a situation, it's not black or white. I think there are going to be far more pressures on uh, China's workers than there were before. There will be fewer people willing to work for 900 RMB a a month.
1: Kathleen, NYU law professor Jerome Cohen, who actually just celebrated his 80th birthday, happy birthday, Jerry, uh, spoke at the FCC in Hong Kong the other day and said, this thing could wreck China's hard-acquired reputation as the workhouse factory of the world, not only because it will create higher wages it could result in the kind of instability that foreign investors dread. So he's talking about sort of social instability factor. I mean, strikes are are hardly anything that are common in China. And this spate of suicides, um, it speaks to maybe some deeper seated problems. I mean, I think that's what everyone is talking about. uh, Inequality, bad work, working conditions. Uh, Is this going to scare off foreign investors?
2: I don't think we're near that point yet. I think a lot Depends on how Apple handles this, how the other companies that have their products made at Foxconn and the other electronics factories handle this. At this point, though, I do think we are seeing, and just from interviews I've done in the last year with factory workers, I am seeing a different attitude from factory workers, that they're no longer the way they were five years ago, willing to accept whatever was offered them, that they feel like they have choices. They know they have some rights under the labor law that was enacted in 2008, And they want the most that they can possibly get for these jobs. So I I think you are seeing this attitudinal change. How that's going to affect Western companies, I don't think we're going to know for a while yet. There's been factory problems for a long time. Foxconn in particular, there were problems back I think in 2006 – um, a couple of British newspapers did some exposés about the iPod sweatshop. So this isn't a new thing. Right. It's just I think that you're seeing overall attitude change among the workers possibly. And a lot depends on how seriously Western companies take it, foreign companies take it, and what they decide to do with it.
0: The workers have the Internet now. I think that's a very important
1: factor. Mm-hmm. It is actually, Yeah. Uh, And the 2008 labor law, I mean, that really did change things. That was really a real inflection point. Would any of you care to share with our listeners what some of the high points of the labor law are? I mean, it became a whole lot more difficult to fire people. I know that.
2: Before the 2008 law, uh, companies depended on migrant workforces who they could fire at whim. And after the law, everyone was guaranteed a de facto labor contract. What has happened, though I did a story a few months ago, what's happened in recent months is that to avoid the costs of the labor contract law, companies have started offering much higher cash salaries to workers. And these are 19 year old workers who maybe don't see the benefit of getting health insurance or a pension. So they're accepting higher cash payouts in place of a labor contract. So there are problems with the enforcement of the contract law as well. But it certainly has made, if one thing, it has made workers much more aware of their rights under the law and that they have rights.
1: Uh, It's interesting. I mean, I remember a few years ago, I talked to uh, uh, somebody who does quite a bit of uh, research on labor out of Hong Kong. I believe his name was Stephen Carter. I'm sure you're all familiar with him. And he was telling me that, and this was years ago, that commonly, you know, the problem that we see is overtime, compensation for overtime. But what people were failing to understand is that you've come all this way from a village in Hunan or from Sichuan. What you want are hours. Mm -hmm. You don't care whether you want to be necessarily compensated for them. You're not there to watch TV in your dorm room. You're there actually to work and make money and send it back to the village or, you know, set yourself up. And so if you are not willing as a factory owner to violate the law and offer those extra hours, uh, then they're going to find another one of the eighty, ninety thousand factories in Dongguan, where the boss will. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that still a problem? Do you think, the, or do you think that people are now sort of feeling empowered now because of the labor law, and they're able to now ask for?
2: I think fair people treatment? know their rights and they know what they can ask for. But over time, you know, eighty hours a week is completely common in these factories, and and it's true the workers will tell you. They're not there to have a good time. They're there to make money and go home in a couple of years. So overtime, I think hasn't changed in the last few years. And,
3: and I, I agree completely that they're, the, the workers, they, they want to make money and if the only way to do that is through extra overtime, they will get frustrated if they can't have those extra hours. I heard people I was, I was at the Foxconn plant uh, last week, uh, and I heard workers complaining that um, in some of the buildings doing some of the work, Uh, People were able to do as much overtime as they wanted, but on different products in different parts of the plant, the demand was low, and they were saying, well, we can't do the overtime we want. You know, it's not much point hanging around. We'd rather go to another factory where we can work those extra hours. So it's not quite as black and white as people think.
1: John, I I neglected to mention that you had actually just come back from Shenzhen recently recently. Uh, I mean, we're we're very we're, we're honored here because we've got a couple of people who've actually spent some time in major electronics manufacturing facilities, and you very recently, Jonathan. I re- you just sent me something uh, that I thought was fascinating. It was a sort of profile of the suicides. Uh, I, what really shocked me, and I think what you pointed out as well, is the incredibly young age of the people. They're all what nineteen to twenty three, twenty four years old.
3: Yeah, it's uh, it was striking to me too. I mean, I, I've been down to Shenzhen many times and seen that workers tend to be young. Uh, but Foxconn, uh, we must have spoken to 30 people, uh, and I would say almost all of them were around about 20 years old, um, and most of them had only been there a few months, and this is very much the profile of the people who jumped. Uh, we kind of listed them all, how old were they, how long they'd been there, and what was remarkable was, uh, they're as you said, they're almost all teens or early 20s. And the brevity of their tenure there. And, man, and the turnover of people in that place, you know, I think of the 12 people, six of them had been there less than four months. Wow. Um, so, I mean, if you look at it from a psychological point of view, psychologists also point or, or often point out that adjustment problems uh, are a major factor in depression, moving into a new environment. So maybe one of the things Foxconn should do, one of many things, would be working harder to allow people to adjust when they're coming out of the countryside, moving into the city, completely different environment. Yeah, it's
1: utterly jarring. I mean, it's really sort of the, the entire thing that we, we talked about, this uh, social transformation that we saw in the Industrial Revolution in, in the 18th and 19th century, when you move into an environment of not, no longer sort of horizontal relationships or vertical
3: relationships, horizontal relationships. But I, th- I think one thing that's important to add at that point, I think, is that there seems to be a generational change in the, let 's remember that for thirty years people have been coming from the countryside and moving into these factories that 's not new, uh, but what labor activists down there are saying is ten years ago you would have the the family bread earner would be coming to the factory and they would work like hell for their families back home, and their families completely depended on them so it was a uh, you know bringing the whole family up, up out of poverty. The, the latest generation they say are younger people, and they 're there because uh, often for themselves, they want to aspirations. More. Yeah, right. Personal aspirations; they want to consume more. So there's a sort of different motivation for that, the workers. That, now.
0: that tallies with my experience. I mean, I made a slightly flippant comment about seeing SUVs in villages earlier, but I do get the feeling that um, the sort of middle class aspirations have come to the countryside in China. Mm-hmm. So people who come from the countryside. <laughs> are subject to a totally different range of pressures. And possibly it's psychologically more traumatic to be a part of, uh, you know, a group of people who are expected to be able to bring money or cars or something home. Whereas 20 years ago, if you could bring back any money, you were a hero. Now the expectations are higher.
1: At the bar is considerably higher. I mean, this is something that, that urbanites are experiencing as well. I mean, the poor kids of the ant tribes who come in from smaller cities into Beijing actually graduate with a college degree and then find themselves unable to meet those material aspirations. I was having lunch with Arthur Kroeber yesterday, and what uh, he's saying is that, look, this is intelligible through a sort of a Marxist lens. This is exactly what's happening. You know, I mean, there's, a, there's a new bourgeois that's, that's – we call them the middle class, but they're not the middle of anything. They're the upper class. Uh, and then we have this massive, exploited, laboring uh, class – uh, this uh, presumably is is extremely problematic, even for putative populists like Wen and, and Hu. Uh, what are they doing to to really address this now? I mean, I, I see a lot of of, of, of you know, movement at the edges. Are there fundamental policies that we can talk about that that are, are addressing these these massive inequalities? I think um,
3: um, with regard to what's going on in Guangdong at the moment. We've heard about these big pay rises, uh, 30% for Foxconn. I think it's something similar or even more for Honda. Uh, but what the labor activists down there are saying is the local governments have agreed this year to raise the minimum wage anyway by 20 to 30%. That's right. So this just so tracks local, that. The government's already <clears throat> trying to push hard. Uh, and long overdue, we should add, that while Chinese incomes uh, and the Chinese economy has grown more than, you know, what is it, doubling every five or 10 years, uh, the, the, the salaries in Guangdong have not marked that at all. So there's a long overdue adjustment in salary that has to come.
2: I was going to say, I'm not sure how much policy the government can, how much change they can affect through policy when the pressure is coming from foreign consumers in a lot of ways, in the Apple example, um, and foreign companies who want to keep their costs down. I mean, that's, they don't have their products made in China, because China has the best factories, they have their products made here. Originally, they built the factories because it was cheaper.
1: Strikes are a rare thing in China. Why has the the government, why even local authorities, why have they allowed this strike to
3: happen at Honda in Foshan? I don't think they have allowed it. Um, well, I mean, they one, haven't
1: quashed it the way they usually nip they things like this in the bud. They right? do
3: tend to do that. I, I think one of the most striking. Um, uh, one, of the, one of those striking things to come out of what happened at Forshan is this really weird situation where the workers are fighting against the union. The well, union is sort of telling them, don't strike. That's right. And the workers are saying, no, we want to strike. So the authorities, it seems like they are trying to some degree to stop the strike from going ahead. Uh, but usually they're more successful, I think. Um, it shouldn't be forgotten there are a lot of protests and strikes that take place down in Guangdong. A lot of them do not get very well reported. And I think perhaps because Honda is such a big company, and this has happened on several occasions, um, it's being widely reported. And, I mean, of course, um, it's inevitable. People will say it's because it's a Japanese company. That's and right. And That's there's a lot of hostility it. towards Japan. But Have you week, actually seen
1: saying, that manifest itself? Have you, seen, have you heard that in the rhetoric of the strikers? Are they talking anti-Japanese rhetoric?
2: I haven't seen that anywhere. Neither
1: have Thank I. I you.
3: haven't heard it, and there was also a, a walkout this weekend at a Hyundai plant right, in so Korean. a Korean <laughs> company in in Beijing. So, uh, perhaps anti Japanese feeling is a factor. But I think we should be slightly careful about saying that's the main factor. I, I
1: think people have been connecting the dots. So in oh five in Dalian, there were strikes at a Nikon or a Canon factory. I'm sorry, and at a Toshiba factory, uh, and I think there was a lot of sort of assumption that. Yes, there was an element of anti-Japaneseness, though I have never seen any evidence at all in Dalian of anti-Japanese.
2: <laughs> but the so. other thing too, I think, in all of this is we have to we have to wonder how much of this is because of better reporting from the Chinese press.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Why
1: do we know about, do we these, things know about these things and what things don't right?
2: we know about? You know, that, would we have known about it a few years ago?
0: That's definitely a factor. But they, I mean, I, I think the fact that the question of labor is, is in the air is, is indisputable. I mean, this morning, some people from some local government organization came to my office. I have a, a locally registered company that I own in Beijing um, trying to set up a union. Uh, you know, because I oppress my workers, so they need... Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, anyway, so we're, we're going to probably Joel, have to start Alice. a union. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are four of us in total, right. you know. Um well. And they all own their own laptops. So in my Dunway, the workers own the means of production. So I just just (laughs) make that clear. Um, It's quite strange, though. Unions are, as you point out, interesting. In that case, the union was telling the workers not to strike. I mean, unions have generally been perceived in China, to my knowledge, as sort of government spies or agents of the government rather than organizations to defend workers' rights. Right. They're actually a tool of oppression.
1: One one of the interesting things that I'm, I'm I'm watching is, is there really going to be some kind of a realignment between China and some of the uh, the countries and their large companies that operate here? Uh, I read something interesting in the Times earlier today. Uh, the reporter's name is Hiroko Tabuchi, and she uh, wrote in Tokyo. The strike has driven home a salient point, as Chinese incomes and expectations rise in line with the country's rapid growth. While Japan's own economy falters, the two countries face a realignment that could permanently alter the way their economies interact. So, how is this going to impact China's relationships with some of it, you know with Japan and some of its other major trading partners like the
3: U.S.? If that's actually what's taking place, as we said, let's let's not jump the gun. Well, let's assume that uh, it is. If right it, now, if right it, now, it right? is, it would be a very dramatic change. Um, if you stop China stops being identified only as the workshop of the world and starts to become a place where workers are paid a reasonably decent wage. And then perhaps they can start buying more stuff. And everyone at the moment seems to want China to buy a lot more. Everyone's saying that's good for the world economy. That's that's what we need. So maybe that's the direction the world needs China to go.
1: Right? Consumption increases, domestic consumption increases, imports increase as a result of that as well. And this is
2: something the Chinese government talks about all the time as well. I mean, they have a stated policy that by 2020, China will be an economy based on innovation rather than manufacturing. Now, I don't think anyone thinks that's going to happen by 2020. But they do have that goal. And I think this kind of realignment is inevitable. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow or even next year or, you know, in the next five years, I think it's going to be a really slow and painful process. But I do think it has to happen eventually.
3: There there are other signs that this is taking place. If you look at the industrial structure of the Chinese economy and what the the NDRC are trying to do is very much move away from the energy-intensive, high-polluting industries, move up the value chain, uh, and and putting up wages a little bit uh, might well push uh, the economy in that direction uh, a bit more. It's very much, I think, that's going to be one of the big goals of the next five-year plan.
1: Jeremy, did you have anything to add to that?
0: I, just that I think it, if it's gradual. It's, it's got to be gradual. There's still a lot of uh, Poorly educated, poor people who have nothing to off- offer but human labor in this country. There are a lot of them, millions and millions and millions. That Absolutely. fact's not going to change, you know, in the next five years.
1: Uh, but meanwhile, they're they're going to face increasing competition uh, from Indonesia, for example, and from uh, other places in Southeast Asia. I mean, even emerging economies like Burma, eventually North Korea, even where you know low skill, low pay wage, I think is is uh, got a lot more miles ahead of it.
2: And some companies have started moving production back to Eastern Europe, in That's fact. right. So it's not just Asia. It's some of it's going back to Europe already.
1: Um, it's been suggested that reform of the hukou system would actually help to le- alleviate the labor shortage. Is it coincidence that this is sort of back in discussion again? I don't know if you guys saw, uh, there was a South China Morning Post report that talked about uh, not yet the introduction of, an, of a, a sort of a national identity card divorced from your place, but at least a, a residence permit system as an intermediary step. Uh, do you think that this is related in some way in effort to alleviate this labor shortage problem? This would allow at least migrant laborers access to some very basic social services in the cities that they move into?
3: I, I think it's all part of uh, the, the same sort of trend and the direction the government wants things to go. They, they're very keen for a lot of uh, rural Uh, residents to move into the city over time uh, that's that's part of the big plan for increasing uh, incomes and GDP inside China Uh, that has become a little bit more difficult in recent years partly because um, they once it's the government has been reasonably successful uh, partly by uh, on purpose partly by luck in in improving living standards in the countryside Uh, and it's still very low of course it's from a very very low base But you've seen the end of the agricultural tax uh, and you've also seen a rise in uh, food prices Mm -hmm. and improved uh, agricultural techniques. So farmers who before almost had no choice but to go into the cities. uh, Now there's not quite that financial imperative. The gap between the countryside and the city is still huge. uh, But you can still, uh, as long as one member of your family is in the city, uh, the others can have a, a reasonable a living delivery, at home. Yeah. So you have to give them more incentives to go into the city, to live a better life in the city, to work in the factories in the city, I think. They've
1: also made it possible now to sublease land uh, across generations. It's 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 um,
3: remarkable. I'm hearing reports, for
1: example, one one city in Hubei, or one village in Hubei, where one family now owns something like 90% or has control of 90% of the agricultural land. This wow. is allowing you know, scaling up of agriculture, using, you know, larger equipment. Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. I to mean, get I think
0: back that's... to the hukou question, though, I, I think it's, it's very clear that the hu-wen administration, if you can call it that, have had uh, inc- income inequality and the, the uplifting of rural uh, Chinese as a, a major part of their agenda. And this fits in with it. But the hukou question in particular, this is something you see, I think every six months, there's a report that says, you know, some provincial government or other has done something with a hukou, done away with a requirement, cancelled it. Somebody is saying something about the hukou. And then the speculation among the wonks and the the media saying, does this mean the end of the hukou system? And every time it ends in nothing, not really any substantial changes. There seems to be some kind of uh, paralysis on the part of the government as to how to solve the, the hukou question. That's right.
2: Well I mean, I've been told that they're afraid that the minute they make a substantial change in in the hukou, the, flood the cities in. will just flood right. millions and millions of people, and they're not set up to handle that flood. And so they're terrified of what's going to happen if they do that. I mean, it's a it's a catch-22, I think.
3: It's all about controlling the speed at which it takes mm-hmm. place, isn't it? And That's and why like I think they think this it. residence right. permit system yeah.
1: might be an intermediary step. Let's move on and focus on, on the suicides, the really tragic suicides that we've seen. Uh, there have been now 13 attempts, and 10, unfortunately, ended with success, if you can call it that. Uh, Foxconn actually operates manufacturing facilities in in Shenzhen that serve clients like Apple, of course, most famously, Nokia, Dell, HP, Sony, Nintendo, uh, just a real roster of a of uh, real who's who in, in consumer electronics. I, I understand that they employ 400,000 people in Shenzhen. And then an additional four hundred thousand around the rest of the country—is that—is that—is that accurate? I mean, that—that's just an absolutely astronomical number. You've it's been hard there,
2: done it. Looks like that, it.
3: That's the numbers that they give out. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's—it's it's staggering. It's—it's it's a city. Yeah. Uh, four four hundred thousand people is is a very substantial in well, Britain at least. You know, that's the size of Bristol. And if, <laughs> it, it's—I think—I think it's very important to get those that huge scale in context because if you had. Uh, 10 suicides in Bristol in six months. I'm not sure it would cause that much uh, attention. But what's, I guess what's in, very different in this case is that it's all in one company uh, and everybody chose pretty much the same method of suicide, uh, which is very unusual. And in particular, jumping in China it's not the normal way that people commit suicide. It's usually rat poison. Rat right? poison, uh, if it's women in the countryside, and suicide. hanging for men in the cities. Yeah. These are the the normal trends. These are the normal ways people kill themselves. And so jumping is weird. And for every almost everyone, except one case, uh, to be jumpers is really remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, critics of Foxconn have concluded, I think, um, that that this is
1: all about working conditions. But others have defended Foxconn, saying that actually conditions in their factories there are comparably. I mean good. Uh, there are still plenty of people trying to to get jobs there. John, I think you, you were just down there. What's
3: it look like? I think most people I spoke to said, look, it's extremely tough. Um, a lot of people don't like it. But almost all of them said, this is not the worst by a long way. Um, you know, it's reasonably clean. Uh, they pay on time. That sounds very normal and of course that's what they should do but in so many factories do not do that so they're respected uh, with that regard but the long hours um, uh, and also that workers are not allowed to talk to each other right. while they're laboring several people said that so clearly conditions are bad but by no means is this uh, like the most shocking case in china not kathleen you've
1: spent a lot of time in these um these electronics manufacturers uh, I mean, who some people have have called Silicon sweatshops, but uh, would you would you agree that uh, with with John's assessment of of Foxconn compared to some of the others that you've seen?
2: Yeah, I think Foxconn is is uh, no worse than any other, and maybe a lot better than some others. Electronic, the electronics factories I've seen tend to be all about on the same level. Uh, they're certainly better than a lot of garment factories, sure, a lot yeah. of shoe factories. The conditions are better. It's definitely not fun work. You won't find a worker in, ele- in an electronics factory who says they love their job generally. It's tough, tough work, but they're pretty well compensated. I, I think that it's a difficult thing, though, to say that the suicides at Foxconn are in line or lower than the general Chinese suicide rate because it's an artificial population.
1: Yeah, yeah I think anyone who has sort of an already monocostal explanation for this, is has, they're wrong and they're not catching the nuance in it. There was a, a terrific piece, an op-ed in the, the Wall Street Journal. I don't know if you all had a chance to read it um, by a fellow by the name of Michael R. Phillips, who's director of the Shanghai Suicide Research and Prevention Center at the Shanghai Mental Health Center and also a professor of psychiatry uh, and global health at Emory University in Atlanta. Um, did you guys get a chance to see this piece?
2: I thought he presented it more as a public health problem That's right. than a than a factory problem, that, that we should be looking at what's happening with these young People psychologically and and how their lives are overall as a whole, rather than trying to assign blame.
1: John, you mentioned that this they were killing themselves in a a sort of strange way that jumping off buildings is not the norm at all, Uh, which reminds me of a a book that I'm sure a lot of you have read, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Tipping Point, where he talks about suicide clusters and contagion of suicide in Micronesia in the 1980s. In the early 1980s, there was a huge percentage, a, a, a huge spike in uh, young men killing themselves in a sort of bizarre manner of hanging uh, that, that actually requires quite a bit of deliberation. You, you don't actually suspend yourself from how you sort of force yourself into a, a noose and, and through the weight of your own body. Uh, uh, it was really morbid, but uh, it, it brings to mind again in Palo Alto at the end of 2009, in October 2009, there was a spike of high school children throwing themselves in front of Caltrans trains. Uh, there were a lot of people who were trying to explain this in terms of, of Suicide contagion and, and clustering. Uh, do you have
3: any thoughts on that? I think that might be one of the factors, one among many sure. factors. And um, there's lots of evidence that suicides do tend to cluster. Uh, I, I worked in Japan as a journalist for uh, eight years and unfortunately had to do a lot of suicide stories there. Um, and one of the most interesting studies there was that there seemed to be one generation that was particularly prone to suicide. It was the generation brought up um, in the Second World War, who came of age in the Second World War. And every time there was a big clump of suicides when the economy turned down normally, it was this group every time that committed suicide more than the other groups. So there, hmm. there's generational factors taking place, there's personal factors, there's geographic factors. And so I, I think that op-ed that said, you know, let's not jump to conclusions and just say this is terrible working conditions, I, I think that's right. I, they may well have been a factor in depressions. Uh, but also the fact that such high turnover, so many people arriving, uh, having to adjust. Uh, and then a lot of the people we spoke to there suggested money was a factor.
1: That's right. Uh, I remember you
3: talked to a doctor just outside, in the clinic just outside the gateway, we, right? We spoke to a doctor, yeah, just outside the gate. And he was saying that, well, um, the word among the workers was that Foxcom after the first suicide, which was very, you know, high profile. Maybe it was a murder. Maybe it wasn't. But anyway, Foxconn came out of that looking so bad that when the second case happened, they paid them off quickly. I don't know if they really did, but this is certainly the belief among the workers.
1: And the belief is that it was
3: 400,000 RB. 400,000 RMB and that therefore, you know, you, you could <laughs> almost work the rest of your life and not earn as much as you could from jumping once. Except and, uh, you'd be dead. Except you'd be dead. So, you know, I, I don't think that means that everyone goes jumping off rather than working. So but a, a if they're depressed already. A perverse form of filial piety. A f- perverse form of <laughs> filial piety. Yeah. And uh, right. I mean, the weird thing is when, you, when you're at Foxconn and you look at Foxconn and these buildings are fairly tall. Yeah. Some are six stories, some are 10 stories, some are 15 stories. But if you think if you really wanted to kill yourself, just... Five minutes walk up the road is a 30-storey and a 40-storey building. But nobody jumped off of those. Everybody seemed to want to choose somewhere in or around Foxconn. So perhaps this compensation was one of the factors. Uh, Uh, it's, It's the theory around there. I don't think that is going to be the only explanation. But...
0: Also don't you think that it, it it may be um facile, simplistic to you know attribute these suicides to bad labor conditions, but it's not a bad thing that this debate is taking place on the pages of The Wall Street Journal and yeah. The Guardian, of course, and the global post. Um, we don 't darn our socks anymore. our grandmothers darned socks because to buy a new pair of socks was very expensive. The reason it's cheap is because people make nothing, making socks. you know, this is a fact. If you consider yourself middle class, it's not just your iPod. It, it, it's it's everything. It's your socks. That's right. Your socks are soaked in Chinese workers' blood,
3: and our iPods, <laughs> <laughs> and iPhones. <laughs> yes,
1: you can wipe that off with n-hexane, I think. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh actually, <laughs> Kathleen, but your I conscience will never be clean um,
0: but uh, you know okay enough joking i mean this is something we should be discussing in the media w- you know w- yeah, there's something absolutely. wrong that
3: somebody makes 900 rmb a month well, the true cost wrong. of things is what it gets down to you know yeah. wh- who's really paying the price and yeah, the, the fact that this debate is taking place is definitely a good yeah, Kaiser
2: passed around an item, I think, that said an iPhone, I'm sorry, an iPad, the actual cost of making one is 11 or $12. That's right. And, and they sell for 400 right?
1: Actually, I have it all here. Um, this is in the blog Fool's Mountain. Consider the experience of global bestseller iPad. Foxconn is the biggest supplier of the iPad. According to Global Market Supply Intelligence Research iSupply, the average cost of assembly in China of each iPad is about $11.20. Given that the lowest-priced version of the iPad cost US $499, one can see that the assembly cost is minuscule when compared to the overall price of the iPad. For comparison, the component cost of each iPad is estimated to be about $219.35, so less than half of the total value that iPad, uh, Apple extracts from the end-customer. The most costly component of the iPad is iPads much raved 9.7 inch touchscreen supplied by Korean manufacturer LG costing Apple some 95 dollars per screen. I mean that that is uh, reason to throw yourself off a building. I mean it's it's really kind of depressing that you, you know your labor is valued. And I think uh, the, 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 the the other point is that you know whose balance sheet in 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 uh, import exports does it actually get chalked up to of course to China's and. Apple is extracting all the – LG and Apple are, are are getting the lion's share of the actual profits.
2: Yeah, I don't know about John, but I've never met an electronics worker who owned one of these products. And I always ask them, do you have an iPod? Do you have an iPhone? Do you have – and they'll have basic cell phones, but they never have the, the real hot gadgets. And yeah. they just say, no way. I couldn't afford that.
1: And when they do and they lose one, like that one the guy who lost that prototype, I mean, that's – horrible consequences of this. Kathleen, actually, you covered that whole N-hexane poisoning that happened in Suzhou at the, the Wintech factory. Can you review for us uh, what some of the facts in that case were?
2: Mm-hmm. There's a Taiwanese electronics component maker in Suzhou owned by Wintech. Um, and they're making one of the things they, they, they produce for Nokia, Apple, and some other companies. One of the things they make are touchscreens for iPhones and iTouch. Mm-hmm. Some point last summer, one of the factory managers decided that to speed up production, they were going to use a new chemical instead of alcohol to clean the screens. The chemical is called N-hexane. It's a known dangerous chemical. It is used in factories around the world, but you have to take safety precautions. You have to wear special gloves and special masks and suits because if you are exposed to the chemical for long periods of time, it causes sustained peripheral nerve damage. Now, the factory brought in the chemical didn't tell the workers that they were changing the chemical, and several dozen workers fell ill. Um, More than 40 of them are still in the hospital in Suzhou almost a year later with nerve damage. Wow. So it's a pretty clear case, unlike the suicides, which I'm glad the suicides are bringing attention to the working conditions, but this, is this case, is, this is clear cut. There's no question that the company harmed the workers. And what I find interesting about that is that it wasn't very widely reported. The Guardian did some great stories on it. The Chinese press did a great job with it. But it didn't get outside of China much beyond that. And I find that kind of curious. I tend to believe that it could be because Apple refused to comment on it. Um, I don't know if other media were uncomfortable in reporting the story because they couldn't get comment from Apple. But I'm glad to see Apple is commenting on the Foxconn situation now because I think they should be addressing it.
1: I mean, it's interesting that I think we all seem to have uh, agreed that there are many variables in play here, that this is not simply something that we can chalk up to working conditions. Uh, this position, I think, was expressed really elegantly uh, by Leslie T. Chang, who is the author of the terrific book Factory Girls, which I'm sure you guys have all had a look at. In a response on a listserv that I'm not supposed to mention, uh, she said, when people hear of a worker suicide in a Chinese factory, their first instinct is to look to the factory's working and living conditions as the cause. I'm not sure that this is the right instinct. In my three years of interviewing workers in the city of Dongguan for my book factory girls, I found that the greatest pressure on workers comes from interpersonal and emotional issues rather than from the conditions inside the factory, which workers tend to take for granted. The instinct from the outside, since we don't know the individuals in question, is to blame the factory. But the individual's story and circumstances matter most of all. Life in the factory universe is complicated. Young people in their teens or early 20s who have never left home before must learn to negotiate relationships with co-workers, roommates, and bosses. They must figure out how to talk with strangers, make friends, go out on dates, save or spend money, and cope with the intense loneliness of being on their own in a strange city. They cope with cliques and rivalries, love triangles and extramarital affairs, unwanted pregnancies and abortions. They're often under a lot of pressure from their parents back on the farm to earn more money, to get married, to come home. All this makes for a high-pressure environment from which, for a handful of workers, suicide seems the only escape. I think that says it pretty darn well listen guys it was absolutely great having you Uh, I hope to have you back both of you Kathleen and John and uh, Jeremy of course he'll be back next week Uh, I think that's all we have time for today and uh, I'd like to thank Dave Lancashire and all the folks here at Pop-Up Chinese Gail for helping us record today and we'll see you all next week